Welcome to Us and You, a podcast about military medicine, the Uniformed Services University, and how to thrive as a healthcare professional. Join us as we focus on a wide range of topics organized in mini-series and continue to develop new content that is most relevant to the military healthcare provider in training. Before you can learn to care for those in harm's way, you must first learn to care for yourself. This is awesome, us and you. I am Dr. Ryan Landall, an assistant professor of family medicine and the assistant dean for preclinical sciences. It is our hope that this series will continue to grow and provide a resource for USU community across the world and throughout the military health system. As a child psychologist by training, I came to the university really passionate about the needs of military families. And a lot of this comes from the fact that I can really remember when I was asked to deploy to Afghanistan. Before that, I got sent to survival school, and my wife called me right before I was heading out to training and was letting me know that my daughter was terrified that these bears in the woods were going to eat me and, and was refusing to go to preschool. So I firmly believe that taking care of our military families is really a vital part of maintaining our own military readiness, and it's wonderful that we're going to start our wellness series off by talking about parenting here. Now, we're really fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Michelle Parker, who is a wonderful friend of mine and a colleague as well. Dr. Parker is the head of school at Seneca Academy and a child psychologist. Prior to coming to Seneca, she worked as a psychologist and administrator at the Sidwell Friends School and was in private practice in Bethesda. Throughout her career, Dr. Parker has presented workshops to parents and teachers at many area schools, including Bullis, Whitman High School, Evergreen School, the National Presbyterian School, Sidwell Friends, The Hill School, and Key Elementary. She's a firm believer that it takes a village to raise a child and loves partnering with schools and parents to support a pragmatic and developmentally appropriate approach to raising children. Michelle, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I know we've in the past talked a lot about co-parenting and, and what that really means, and I thought what we could do today is spend about the next hour or so talking about what co-parenting is, and in particular kind of this idea that, you know, you and I have talked about before of a shared vision, what that what that even really means, and, and then, you know, talk a little bit about how we might accomplish that, and in particular, some of the unique challenges that our students here at USU face with co-parenting. I think there's a lot of sort of when we think about co-parenting, oftentimes we'll think about traditional two parents in a single household. And really our families here might uh, involve not just the parents of their children, but also aunts or uncles. When one of our students goes out on their clinical rotations, a close friend may be involved in the co-parenting relationship or in-laws or our own parents. And so it really can become even more complicated when we talk about who's doing this co-parenting. Um, and, and after we talk a little bit about that, I, I want to wrap up by just sort of thinking about you know, what are some additional resources here so that we know if, if we're struggling with this co-parenting relationship, where can we turn to? And, and so that's our plan for today. And I thought we'd start when we talk about this idea of a shared vision, you know, what does that really mean? Well, that's, that's a great question, Ryan, that I think are, are pertinent, not just to the military families that, that you work with, but just for all parents. And, um, uh, I think we often don't realize when we embark on uh, having kids, we think we've picked a partner that we share a global vision for what we want in life, for what we want for our kids. But what we underestimate is how nuanced 
the vision really has to be to be able to, to help guide us in the day-to-day -day of the decisions that we're going to make uh, about what dinner is going to look like, what bedtime routines are going to look like, how we're going to decide when we're going to let our children learn how to drive, when we're going to let them have a date, and that's probably very far in advance, but even as easy as what do we want to do as a family on the weekends, how much time are we going to spend together. All of these uh, decisions that we make in, in, on a day-to-day -day basis ultimately have to reflect a shared idea of what we want for our kids. Uh, and and what we want our family to look like and what we want our children to remember 25 years from now. And that doesn't just happen automatically because we have a very global sense of what we want. So I think that it, it takes some intentional conversations to really uh, begin to flesh that out uh, with your partner and with the folks that are helping you raise your children. And it starts really with having a sense of, of what you want for your kids. Related to what you were just talking about as far as parenting goals, you know, what do you ultimately, I mean, what do we ultimately think we want for, or, you know, for children to be successful? What are some of the things that you feel like are important for kids um, to have in those parenting relationships? That is a much harder question than one would think to answer. And there's actually been a, a great deal of research done uh, where, where people have been asked, what do you want for your, your children? What are your goals as parents? And at a very global level, the answer that we tend to hear is that we want our kids to be healthy, happy, successful, able to pursue their interests, have healthy relationships. So at that global level, in one form or another, the goals of every parent for their kids is for them to be able to be successful and happy. I think that can actually look very different, though, for different families. And, and most certainly, the way, the, the road to get there can look very different for different families. And so the challenge really is to shape that road and the path for each family in a way that reflects the, the much more nuanced vision and values uh, and experiences of, of each of the parents uh, and the parenting team to be able to get to the more specific goals that, that each parenting team has. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of at the university, we have a reflective practice curriculum and it's all about sort of understanding how students' personal contacts, you know, the experiences that they had growing up, maybe the experiences that they had that brought them to medical school, um, shape how they view uh, their role as a future physician. And I'm kind of wondering, what parallels do you see when you think about how maybe uh, growing up as children, the roles we see our parents and our caregivers fill, and how that shapes and influences what we see as our personal context in parenting? There's, that's a great point. There's, a, I see a lot of, of overlap. Um, and in fact, that kind of reflection on an ongoing basis um, at every developmental stage um, that you go through as a parent and, uh, and that our children go through, um, I think we have to do that kind of reflection. I think that we, you know, again, we start off with very global, with a shared vision that is quite global, um, but the nuances in, in what those visions are for our children and what the path looks like 
we make assumptions that they may be more shared than they actually are, and we fill in the gaps of those with those assumptions from our own experiences as children, from having watched our parents and decided in what we saw in our parents and what worked and didn't work in our families, uh, what we wanted and didn't want for our own families. But but each um, member of the parenting team, whether it's co-parents or um, or uh, caregivers or um, other family members who are involved in the in the raising of the children are really coming at it from very very different perspectives, um, and the, I think the the process of of shaping um, a shared mission statement, a shared uh, vision of of how to move forward, involves taking reflecting on how our perspectives are shaped by our own experiences, putting them on the table in an explicit way, and then in an active collaborative way negotiating a way forward that will provide kids ultimately with a more consistent, coherent experience um, of their family lives. One of the things we've talked about before, I know, is, and I think about in, in my own personal life, you know, when my wife and I first got together, um, the kinds of things that were important to us and the kinds of things that we had to see, whether we had shared values about, aren't necessarily the same things that we think about now raising our children. And so I think that's a really interesting point. You, you talked about sort of developmental periods with parenting. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that because it's a really interesting point. Well, I think we assume when we um, get married and decide to have children that we've, you know, we've entered the phase of our own development that we would call adulthood. And we assume that adulthood is is one discrete uh, uh, phase in our lives. Um, but in fact, we go through changes. There are many sub-phases of adulthood, and they tend to, to change over time as we parent different age group children. Um, it causes, you know, as when we were parenting an infant or a toddler, we're in a particular phase and we're influenced by, by certain memories. But as we begin to parent um, uh, school-age kids, and in particular, when we start to parent pre-adolescents um, and, and adolescents, we really have to go through a reorganization of how we think about um, who we are in relation to our children and who we are and were in relation to our own parents. So, um, so we go through a lot of changes that will naturally cause us to shift um, and rework our vision of what we want for ourselves and um, and what we want for our children um, so that so this is a very fluid process that we can't assume because we've had one conversation it's a one and done um, we really need to continue to do the reflection the work and the um, and the fine-tuning as we change and as our children change um, and what what makes it fun yet challenging is that sometimes uh, all of those are going to be happening at different paces. So we may change and our co-parent or partner may not quite have gotten to that change and so it'll feel like discord and one person may be feeling like we need to readjust while the other one doesn't. And so you have to find a way to, to be able to recognize and put on the table when either one or both are feeling like there needs to be um, some more conversation to refine the vision and the, and the strategies for moving forward. And sometimes the kids drive it. 
um, sometimes the kids will present with uh, with challenges that you hadn't thought of, like, uh, you know, oh, my God, they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And uh, what do we do now? <laughs> we hadn't wanted to go there, but now we have to. It's so funny, you know, you say that because I think about so many parents that I work with are always very concerned about that sort of zero to five, that early childhood experience. And I know that in my own personal life, I've always felt the most comfortable as a father in that in that area. And I felt like I understood, okay, how do I help kids feel, you know, attached to their caregivers and those kinds of things. But I'll tell you, moving into, you know, middle child, which is supposed to be when you look at the child psychology literature, the kind of period of, of just peace and, and serenity and there's not a lot of challenges um, but that's actually one of the things I struggle with the most is that is that middle childhood area because we're where we are shifting in terms of uh, helping them to navigate more complex peer relationships and helping to uh, develop some autonomy and sense of self and all those other kinds of things which I think maybe that's you know because I, I think as a psychologist that's just so critical that I, I feel very intimidated so I really appreciate your point that that those developmental stages that our children are going through are also simultaneously developmental stages that we as parents are going through and that some may be easier than others and there's not necessarily a typical pattern of that. It's probably shaped by who, who we are and what we bring to the table. It's interesting because in some ways we start as as difficult as the first five years are of parenting with a young child because they're so demanding um, in time. And from, from a parenting perspective, in some ways, things become more complex as you move along. And that, and that probably has more to do with what it takes from us as individuals and, what, and how it pulls on our individual sense of self than the amount of time that it takes um, and energy that it takes. And that's, you know, we, we don't have a lot of memories of, of our parents and our childhood from those very, very early years. So our sense of who we are with respect to our children, you know, we're the caretakers, you know, is very clear to us. We're the caretakers, we're going to be the managers, you know, we, um, we're big, they're little, um, we're protecting them. Um, the, the boundaries are, are very, very clear. The, the, what we want um, is often a lot clearer. As the kids get older and we start to have more of a reservoir of memories of those uh, years, our, our sense of who we want to be with respect to our children and the kinds of boundaries we want to establish with them and how we want that to look starts to get a little bit more muddied by our memories of um, what we experienced, what we liked and didn't like as we were children. And it becomes harder to differentiate our own experiences and our identification with our kids um, with what we want as parents and how we want to think about it. So the closer we get to remembering what it was like to be a child that age, the harder it is to clarify the role and the approach that we want to take. Um, does that make sense? Uh, it's such a great point. I, it's reminding me of how I think part of the problem I've experienced lately is I, I do worry, what are they going to remember? And I think that's something that is a new consideration for me as I, is I, I know they're not going to remember that zero to five period as well. But I feel like, you know, my oldest who's seven, she's going to have some memories and she's going to have some pretty strong memories about specific events. And so there's always, when something goes wrong, I'm always like, is this, is this one of those events? Right. Um, so I think we can agree that on a, on a good day, 
um, in an ideal situation, parenting and, and co-parenting with a spouse or a partner or a, care, a caregiver, sometimes even our own parents, um, can be a huge challenge. In the military, I think there are some unique challenges, and I think particularly for our students here at USU, there are some challenges on top of that because you know, military families often experience cycles of deployment, and so they're going to be geographically separated. They're going to be uh, experiencing periods of heightened stress for both parents uh, or both caregivers. Um, and they may have to rely on other caregivers that may weren't the traditional ones. So even sometimes when a spouse uh, may deploy, the spouse who's remaining at home may elicit help from uh, an in-law or from their own parents or from a trusted friend. And so there's more people in the, in the kind of parenting mix. Um, so with all that in mind, I mean, how do you feel like that influences some of these challenges that we've been talking about in, in unique ways? I think in a variety of ways. First, let's talk about the co-parenting unit. So it's the actual parents of, of the child. I think that on a good day, co-parents who are sharing time and space together on a more routine, typical basis are challenged to find times to have the conversations um, that it requires to do this continual self-reflection and shaping of, of this shared vision and uh, shared path. Um, for parenting. That might usually ha happen in a, an easier way right before bedtime. Um, there's there's more opportunities to have to have those conversations. When schedule or deployments or um, uh, distance make that harder, then I think that the challenge is to, to um, not forget to sh carve out specific times to have those conversations. And it may require, because they're, they're, you're not able to have them in the same organic way, um, have to be a little bit more strategic about how you shape those conversations. So they may be getting some support from uh, counselors like yourself and what kinds of questions uh, would be helpful to, uh, to really make a specific point of asking. Um, uh, like what do we want as you're doing with your own child? What do we want them to remember when when they're 25 or 30 about their childhoods, about us as parents and about what their family life felt like and how do we get ourselves there? So being more intentional about having those conversations. And I think that that's really, really important because at the end of the day, kids need um, both their parents to feel connected to them and connected to their parenting, whether they're in the same space or not. Um, there's lots of research that suggests that kids are able to tolerate um, these kinds of, of distances, but a lot of it is going to depend on how the parent who's able to spend less time with them uh, is able to maintain that feeling of connection to the parenting uh, and to the child. And when the revisions that are not happening in a more organic way as new challenges and experiences happen day to day with the child, if one parent is less involved in that, then when that parent comes back, they feel disconnected from it. Um, and so it's important for, um, and the other parent has just been adjusting uh, in an organic way in response to the day to day uh, changes that are occurring and challenges that are arising. It's important that the conversations about that 
continue to be looked at together to have them happen um, in an explicit way. So that it really feels like at the end of the day, even if one parent is implementing the parenting plan, that it's being shaped by the values and uh, of both parents and that it feels like it belongs to both parents um, and both parents have a voice in that. It's a great point. And I think one of the things that, and as we've discussed before, that's really unique here at USU is that our, our medical students and our nursing students, when they go out on their clinical rotations, those are in some ways kind of, you know, mini deployments, right? And so you, you, I heard you talk about some of the language that we use when we talk about the deployment cycle, you know, that, that there's an adjustment period in the pre-deployment phase and there's a reunion phase when post-deployment where, where you have to re-navigate this change in, in, in family roles. But the challenge here um, at USU is I think that those kinds of things are happening in a much shorter time frame. And, and they're happening on the order of weeks or months. And sometimes I think too, in these demanding academic schedules, I've seen uh, the tendency I've heard from different members of, of kind of the co-parenting relationship. Well, I don't wanna disturb him or her who needs to study for this exam, who's got a demanding academic schedule, or the uh, student themselves is saying, you know, I, I need to focus on my schoolwork and so I'm I'm locking myself up in my, you know, kind of office study space for some time. So there's there's an idea that even though they're physically present, um, even, you know, every couple of weeks they might be home and actually be present, there's not maybe some of those opportunities that you talked about for organically having some of that co parenting develop. And that's really, really tough. I think that to the extent that there can be specific time that's carved out of a schedule to um, to have those conversations or to reconnect as co-parents. And, and this is in addition to, or maybe in combination of, re of just making sure that you are also making sure that you're reconnecting as a couple because time and, and all these constraints are making you feel less connected to your, to your partner, then those feelings start to shape and often get played out in the co-parenting that are sometimes less about the co-parenting piece than about how you're feeling um, as, as a couple and how each of you is supporting the needs of the other. Um, and so really, I think it takes a more intentional effort to find the time, um, and it doesn't have to be a long time, and it can be just a few moments or just saying that once a week we're, um, we're gonna sit down when the kids go to sleep and have a glass of wine or a glass of cocoa, you know, a cup of cocoa, and, um, and just say we're gonna talk through how we're feeling about how things are going. But I, I think it requires a commitment to some intentional uh, caregiving of the relationship and uh, the co-parenting relationship is a component of that. Yeah, you know, that intentionality is, is something that sounds so simple, and yet the reality is we really, really struggle with it. And I think about the clinical work I do where we practice mindfulness, and probably the biggest part that I have to work on emphasizing is the intentionality behind our actions and how much that really changes the dynamic of what we're doing. And, you know... At the beginning of the show, we talked about how co-parenting can involve not just parents, but you know, other caregivers as well. And as I said, I think we see that especially in our military context where these deployments and for our, you know, our, our medical students and our nursing students who have these clinical rotations that are sometimes very brief, um, but very frequent, they can see that happening on an even shorter time scale. 
And so one of the things that I think about as we involve more people, the dynamics of those relationships, right? I mean, we sometimes don't get along as well with our in-laws or our parents even, or our aunts or our uncles or our brothers or our sisters. And, and so I think your really good point about the idea that it's important to take care of that relationship as well as that co-parenting relationship. So we've talked a lot about, I think, the importance of it as well as, you know, just how challenging it can be. You know, I want to shift for a little while and think about, okay, so how do we do this? You know, we so we carve out this intentional time. We set aside in our very busy schedules, you know, a few minutes uh, once a week or something along those lines and, and think about this. And what do we do with that time? Well, I think the starting place um, is to really start with a nice chunk of time that will set the foundation for conversations moving forward. That perhaps this has been had in, in bits and pieces, but I would argue that um, that sitting down in a very intentional way, creating almost a, a mission statement for yourselves as co-parents, um, because that's gonna be uh, what you keep coming back to when you hit roadblocks or challenges, how do we respond to this in a way that's going to be consistent with our mission statement? So I think investing in starting with that is helpful. And there, I would say that taking some time to do some self-reflection in preparation for that, what we liked or didn't like and what we observed and learned from our own childhood experiences and from observing our parents and what conclusions we reached from those reflections about what we wanted as individuals for our children and and what we wanted our parenting to look like armed with those reflections enter into a conversation with your co-parent uh, partner uh, and and share those um, uh, your partner see how where you're coming from is shaped by your your history um, and then once you've done that and you've been able to recognize where you overlap um, where you don't overlap um, i would shift to um, the places where you first where you overlap and start from there to um, to to see how that fits into uh, an image of of what you want for your kids. And I would take a long-term view. I know that it's hard when you're dealing with toddlers or infants or very young kids to think about what things are going to look like when they're 25 or 30, but that's really what your mission statement. As parents, your task is really to support your child's development, um, to get them to be the kinds of people you want them to be uh, when they're older. And we can take 25 as a, you know, a number to keep it in mind uh, as a focal point. What do you you want them to be like? What are the values um, that you want them to share with you? Um, uh, how do you want them to remember their childhood? If you were talking to your 25-year-old and asking them, what do you remember? Um, how do you want them to remember you as parents? What do you want them pulling out from their experience to apply to their to thinking about themselves as parents the way you're doing now what would you want those takeaways to be for them and then see how your partner's um, vision of your the kids at 25 matches with yours where are they similar where are they different and to the extent that they're different then at that point 
having conversations about what matters the most and how can we take what you're saying and what I'm saying and either find a way for them to coexist or find a way to negotiate a middle ground so that we can have a shared vision for our kids. Sometimes they can coexist, but sometimes it requires a negotiation. I would say that having these um, hypothetical conversations is a great starting point to start to build the skills that you need as a team to negotiate when when you're going to have differences in, in what you want for your children or how you want to handle a situation. Handling those situations and managing that in the moment at times of much more heated emotional investment is all that much more challenging. So part of this exercise is not just about creating a shared vision, but about practicing the kinds of relationship skills that you're going to need to get yourself through the challenging points down the road. And the stakes do get much higher. Um, I know from my children are in their 20s, um, and I know that when they started driving, going to parties, going, and I don't want to scare anybody, but, okay. but as they get older, they, um, the kinds of things that you're having to negotiate with your partner that feels like the stakes are higher. Um, and so in some ways, you need to start from the very beginning, just developing the kinds of skills so that when you get to more challenging problems, you've at least built your toolbox and are armed with the tools that you're going to need to negotiate those because uh, they do get more challenging. But so I would, I would start with just playing with uh, how you negotiate a shared vision. And this doesn't have to take hours. It doesn't have to be a three-day retreat um, the way it would be in an organization. It really can just be a series of conversations that you come back to over a few weeks. But being intentional about it is important. And then I think the next step of that journey is saying, okay, well, if this is, we've come to a point where we have a sense of the shared values that we want for our family and for our children and what we want things to look like, um, how do we structure our home life and our parenting in a way that's going to help us get there? Uh, you know, what do we want family meals to look like? What do we want routines to look like? What matters to us most about our, our kids' uh, manners, about their uh, the way that they relate to, to other children, how we structure their time, um, what kinds of shared experiences do we want to have as a family to begin to shape those kinds of memories and give the kids an opportunity to internalize what our values are as a family. And then what kinds of parenting strategies are going to get us there? How do we want to set limits? How do we want to um, set the tone uh, for how conflict gets resolved in our family, including how will we handle when we disagree? I think that to have talked about ahead of time, not in a moment of crisis, how you want to problem solve together is important. Otherwise, I think it's very easy for kids to um, begin to split us um, and get us into situations where our disagreements are being played out in front of them in a way that's not always helpful to them. Um, and they become players in, uh, in how we manage our negotiations as co-parents as well. So the more you've talked about it ahead of time, the more in the moment when they're pressing your buttons, you can fall back on that memory of the conversation you had with your partner. No, it's funny, you know, that's, that's a very similar conversation that I have with a lot of individuals I work with clinically as far as um, practicing things like uh, 
you know, cognitive disputation, challenging negative patterns of thinking, or things like relaxation strategies. You know, there's a lot of really good evidence for the benefits of exercise and yoga and even deep breathing, just as simple as, you know, deep, controlled, diaphragmatic breathing. But a lot of times individuals don't practice those skills. And so the first time they're using it is in a period of intense emotional distress. And the analogy I use sometimes is, well, how good do you think a field goal kicker would be if the first time he took a, a kick was in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl? It's not going to go so well. And I think we see that in some of these parenting discussions come up as well. It's, it's, it's such a great point. So, and I think one of the things we're going to do as part of this series is actually put some of those questions that you posed, you know, in terms of what are our goals as parents? What do we want our children to, to look like when they're 25? You know, how do we then structure some of the things like family meals and routines? All those things I think we're going to put in some supplementary material so that individuals who are listening can actually download that, look at that, think through themselves, and have conversations with one another about that. And so I think that's going to be a really good point. I want people to definitely check out as we as we do that. You know, I'm curious, you know, we've talked a lot about doing all of these things, and it's a lot of work. I wonder if you can speak to a little bit of um, why you think this matters when you think about child behavior you know so in other words um how does all of this ultimately manifest itself when it comes to looking at our children's behavior well i think for i think it's important that we um go back and and finesse what our goals are as parents at the end of the day if what we want for our kids is for them to be healthy happy able to pursue their goals and, and meet them in a way that's going to feel satisfying to them um, what we really are doing is as parents is helping our kids get from point a to point b and point a they are um, absolutely dependent on us don't have the self-regulation the sense of self and the tools that they need they're they're in infants that are completely dependent on us, um, and we want them to get to a point where they're autonomous, self-motivated, self-reliant, have a healthy sense of self, have the skills that they need to have healthy relationships. And our job really as parents is to keep them safe, first and foremost, but, but really to be their primary teachers and guides, shepherds, if you will, uh, to get them from point A to point B. And so we need to be strategic about how, how we do that and how we choose to parent and how we choose to establish our family routines and how we choose to communicate our values uh, to our children because our values will be their moral compass uh, in some ways that they internalize to, to get them to a place where they will be good people that reflect who, what we want for them. And the way we shape what our home life looks like and how we interact with them and how we um, model to them, how we resolve conflict and how we explicitly model our, our values, which we have to agree on first, is gonna directly impact our ability to, to be a shepherd for them from point A to point B. And I think that one of the things that I talk a lot about as a head of school to my teachers and to the families that, that I work with and in my own private practice is that um, a lot of the things that we want at a more global level for our kids um, really derive from the development of the frontal lobes, which incorporate the skills, self-regulation, um, being able to, to um, identify cause and effect, being able to problem solve, internalize a coherent sense of self, 
that the way we approach setting limits and establishing boundaries in, in our home and in our classrooms and in our schools, that is the grist for the mill that the children then are able to internalize that promotes that kind of brain development. Uh, and so we want to be thoughtful about how we do that because at the very end of the day, that has a direct impact in the underlying psychological skills that kids need to be able to go from point A to point B. Now, you know, I think it's it's funny. I know we've had uh, previous conversations before about when when we're doing all of this right. Um, you know, so we're we're having a shared vision with our partner. We're communicating that to our children. We're intentional about it. Um, and and I think you know what you're speaking to is that's giving the child the best uh, set up to have really good well-developed you know frontal lobe brain development and putting the environment of consistency it's helping with behavior problems and providing learning about cause and effect and communicating values and moral development at the same time i i've noticed um i'll come home and my kids are being monsters right i mean they're still not listening to one another they're not communicating with each other the way that i might um want them to or what i think is important values for how we interact as human beings and a lot of times i come home seeing that and feeling like wow i must be failing at all of these things you just told me that we should be working on um i, I must be doing a, a a really really bad job of that um and I, I think I think that that's a universal uh, experience of families with young children. Often, at the end of the day, um, the kids are at their most tired. All human beings function at a range where they can be their best selves or they can be what one of my favorite authors calls their baby self. And adults have their baby self too. Often at the end of the day, the kids are being their most baby self. We need to know, and that's not a reflection on our parenting. In some ways it is, in some ways it's a reflection on our parenting in a positive way because it means that the kids feel safe enough to be able to let down their guard and be um, in some ways their, their least sophisticated self um, with us. That doesn't mean we're going to accept those behaviors and not continue to try to shape them you know, towards, towards growth. But that's where it's important to accept that that's who they're going to be in the evenings when you come home, that that's normal. Um, know that their teachers are not observing that, that they often, their best self is often during the day at school because that's where there's a little bit more structure. It just happens to coincide with the best time of the day when they're most rested and that you're gonna get their, the baby selves in the evening and that that's not a reflection on, on your parenting, it just is the way it is. And then to prepare for that, to say, okay, well, if that's who they're going to be, what can we do to, to um, create routines and structures and, and expectations for how that evening is gonna go that is going to accept that they're gonna be their baby selves, but help the family feel a little bit less chaotic and more what you need um, when you come home. And part of the complication of the evenings are often, evenings and mornings seem to be the times of day when that I hear about the most in my private practice. You know, help me with the evenings, help me, because that also is 
the time when the adults are not at their best. And um, in fact, I, uh, yeah, we're all our baby selves. In fact, I, I think if I remember back to when my children were younger and I had to think about as I was learning how to help support families. I was learning a lot about collaborative problem solving and how to um, uh, use I, you know, the importance of using I statements in talking to your spouse when something wasn't feeling um, right. And the example that I always use is one from the evening of uh, when I happened to have a job where I uh, would get home uh, earlier than my husband had more flexibility um, and would, would get dinner going. Um, get the kids home, get them doing their homework and get dinner going. And my husband would arrive just, you know, shortly before dinner and to his credit would, would help with dinner. But, um, uh, but I was always, I always felt like in a frenzy, um, trying to get dinner ready and, and he would come home. And the first thing that he would do was, um, go through the mail and, and read through the ca the catalogs. And what I was feeling was, you know, don't you realize that I'm exhausted and all I really want is for you to offer to help, uh, you know, saute the green beans or something. And I realized that I was getting, be becoming snarky with him and getting frustrated, you know, and eventually we sat down and we said, what, you know, what, this isn't feeling right to us. We're, we're getting on each other's nerves and then it makes the evening not feel good. And then we're tense and it makes dinner, which is part of our shared value of our kids being able to have a family dinner, um, not feel right. And it's coloring the evening um, because right from the get-go, I'm annoyed with you and you're annoyed with me because I'm being snarky. And when we realized and were able to put on the table what each of us needed, and, and then figure out, okay, well, I'm needing one thing, you're needing another thing. How do we establish a routine that is predictable for us that doesn't leave us feeling like we're not paying attention to what the other one needs? And so eventually we came up with a compromise of um, giving him a few minutes to have the downtime that he needed when he came home, but then having him cover for me so that I could have a few minutes of downtime. And that took a process of collaborative problem solving because at that time we were both really being baby our baby selves and our kids were being their baby selves. And it was just a high point of stress for us as a family. One of the things that it speaks to is a lot of times I work with individuals and I'm always reminded of what uh, what the airlines tell us about putting our own oxygen mask on before we help others, and I think so often when we talk about self care, it can it can feel or appear selfish that that people really struggle with the self care activities because their their primary concern is uh, their children or their partner. You know, I think a lot of times people are thinking about wanting to take care of others, which is such a wonderful value but it's how to help people see the importance of taking care of yourself. And I always joke, you know, the airlines don't tell you to, to put on your oxygen mask and then watch the in-flight movie and, and maybe have a cocktail and then see if anyone needs help. So there's a, there's a balance there, but it's this idea that you have to make sure that, that you are meeting, you know, some of your very basic needs. And I think that's so, so important that, that you mentioned. And I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier about the importance of self-reflection and having a reflective practice. Because I think that part of what ended up working in that particular vignette with my husband is that that each of us went back and thought what we about what we really needed, and I realized that at the end of the day, like for instance, 
I, I, I'm only inside my own head, that what I needed was at some point I needed downtime and that what I was feeling when I really went to dissect what was going on in my in my own mind is that I was resenting that my husband got to come home and have a few minutes of downtime and I really hadn't. I mean, I had driven the kids, gone to the grocery store, gotten dinner going and I hadn't stopped. But being able to recognize that in myself and putting both of our needs on the table and then saying, well, okay, I can keep going with that and it's gonna be easier for me to keep going and give you that when you get home. Um, because now I know, and one of the things that we agreed to was that, that he would manage um, getting the kids to help clean up afterwards. And I would go up and have a few minutes um, before the bedtime routine to myself to do what, have some of my own me time. Um, and that we would cover for each other in that way. And so all of a sudden, him coming home and, and, and going through the mail, which was what he needed, felt like a shared plan that we had. But it took us looking at what was really annoying um, each of us about the other and, and how that was uh, related to needs that we were feeling we had that weren't being met. No. So, I mean, I think that's such a great point. And I think, you know, as it's getting near the end of our hour here, I, you know, I think there's kind of one or two final points I'm, I'm wondering about. And I think the first is, you know, we talked so much about consistency, about taking care of yourselves about intentional communication and i think you know the the truth is at the end of the day we're always bombarded of all these things we're supposed to be doing we should be doing um and there's so much great research and knowledge out there but i think it ends up uh feeling us leaving us feeling overwhelmed sometimes right and so i think i wonder you know what your thoughts are as far as if i've got this big picture in place if i've got this value and I've got this mission statement, you know, what do you see as the impact when I make mistakes as a parent? You know, do, is that something I should be worried? Because I think sometimes we feel as though we have to live in a sort of a, a, a zero failure environment as parents and it, it's very intimidating. When I do uh, parenting talks, the first thing that I often tell parents is the conclusion, the moral of the story is um, breathe, first breathe. Um, uh, and know that instinctively, um, the most important thing that we do with our children is love them, nurture them, um, uh, enjoy them. And, and so giving yourself uh, some time and space to, to just breathe and let that happen that in and of itself, you're, you've already accomplished a big chunk of, um, of uh, what you need to do as parents. Um, the second th point that I would make is that um, uh, the, the expectation, I think, a, a good parent is actually a good enough parent, um, uh, not a perfect parent. Uh, perfect parents don't give children opportunities to, to witness um, and, and see modeling of how we um, uh, um, respond to, th to things when they don't work out the way we want them to work out. Um, so, you, um, so you actually, if you were a perfect parent, um, you actually wouldn't be helping your kid, your kids build a toolbox that they need to be resilient um, and uh, able to able to manage all the the, the demands and the the um, the things that they're going to have to cope with as they as they grow older. Um, there's lots of wiggle room for um, 
for figuring this out as you go along, um, which is one of the reasons why I think it's important to, to think of this as an ongoing process, because you're going to have to shift strategies along the way. And the way you're going to know that, you, that it's time for a shift is because something's not going to be feeling right. Uh, and and you you have to be doing enough reflection as you go along to recognize when that's happening, um, but but that means that you're not going to get it right, and that's okay because that's what's going to help you grow. Um, and in fact, that's how progress of any kind, whether it's as parents or in any field, happens: is that we hit. Um, uh, uh, blocks or impasses or challenges, and we have to regroup and figure out how to manage those challenges. So uh, we shouldn't expect that parenting is going to be any different. I always like to emphasize to the students, you know, that that we learn, you know, sometimes almost the most through our failures and through our challenges, and that that's those that's how we develop resilience. That's how we develop knowledge. Usually, that's how we. Um, do a lot of things that are really, really important for growth and development in academic medicine as well as parenting. You know, as, as we wrap up for today, I mean, is there anything else that you would like to share? Are there things that if, if parents are listening and they say, okay, but my kid does this or, or but this is what I'm seeing at home, should I be concerned? I mean, there are things that, that we would say that we should definitely make sure parents are aware of that would be outside of, of kind of this process that you're talking about and, and what should we do in, in those cases? I think um, kids, as they develop, go through ups and downs and, and, they, and development isn't linear. So sometimes it seems like they've made progress in one area and they regress. And, um, and I think that, uh, that if there's any, con first I think that the trusting your instincts is really, really important. If you're feeling like something doesn't feel right, use the resources that you have around you. I think that whether it's counseling um, uh, centers, pediatricians, um, teachers, I find that teachers have such an amazing sense of uh, the range of, uh, of behaviors that are that are typical in uh, children of a, of a given age and so much of what we observe that we find problematic at home when you talk to your friends who have kids the same age have support groups with parents of same age um, uh, kids you'll find that everybody's going through the same thing being able to check in to see whether what you're observing is within the normal range which is quite wide to begin with um, that I think is is one uh, one piece of advice that I would give. If you have concerns and what you're hearing, what you're observing starts to feel like it's different than what your um, uh, peer group is observing in their children, uh, first and foremost, I would reach out to the school and I would ask the teachers what they're how what they're observing and reach out to the pediatrician because I think that they that they are in a position to be able to take what you're describing. Um, uh, and put it in the context of, of uh, more typical developmental um, presentations and help you decide whether it's um, uh, something that you want to see if time will uh, and development will just take care of itself, take care of things, um, or if seeking out a, a, 
a specific consultation to get some support and um, and help you shift strategies if that's what is necessary. Um, uh, but but use your resources to help you decide whether you've gotten to that point. Well, that's a a great point. You know, I think in particular, I'm always struck by how many students I have come through my office that are struggling academically and think that they're the only ones who are struggling academically um, or trying to decide if this career in medicine is worthwhile for them and and think they're the only ones who don't have a plan for what specialty they're going to go into. And I think the same thing is true with parenting, right? That That we feel like we are the worst parents and we're the only parents who are having trouble with with discipline or having trouble with uh, kids doing well and then having that peer group to sort of understand what's normal and and to get some reassurance when things are not normal you know to know when to sort of seek out some of that help i think that's that's such an important point and uh that yeah, you made i think that one of the um you know, especially families that may um be here away from an extended family and support system uh, where where multiple generations are are there to give advice um, and and um, give feedback on oh yeah all kids do that you know help you sort of normalize what you're observing it's important that if you don't have that built in through an extended family that you that you find other ways of of developing that kind of um, support network whether it's with um, a parents group or a parent support group or um, through church, through school. I know that in my in my school, we um, we talk a lot about uh, making this sure that the school feels like a, the village uh, that helps uh, partner with uh, with parents to to um, to raise and support the development of, of their children. Um, it's important to find your village um, because it's in that village that you will um, be able to. to uh, test out uh, what feels right and what doesn't feel right and to get um, uh, just have more minds uh, able to contribute to strategies that might work uh, to, to um, continue to, to develop your um, uh, your path forward with your kids. Well, I want to I thank you today. It's, it's been a lot of fun to sit here and, and talk uh, for about the last hour or so. And I think we've had a lot of really interesting things to talk about, a, really, a lot of great points. And I always go back to thinking about, you know, the military, we operate at, you know, we call the strategic level, the operational level, and then the tactical level, really getting into the weeds. And I, and I feel like today we, we did a nice job of really outlining that broad strategy, you know, and how important it is to start with that broad strategy, that big mission statement that says, what do we want to get out of parenting? What do we want to see our kids accomplish and achieve as they move through life? And it, you know, it sets us up in a, in a nice way, I think, for some conversations that I hope we can continue. And I think, you know, digging down to that next level, that operational level of, okay, so we've got this idea of a shared mission statement, but what does that do when we think about where kids are developmentally? And how does that change how that mission statement might look. And we talked a little bit as well about the fact that there are other people involved in in this village as we talked about. We talked about the military community being a resource here, but we also talked about the fact that sometimes in-laws and parents and brothers and sisters and friends are might be involved in a, in a parenting role and we may not get along with them. And so how do we resolve some of those differences and those disagreements? 
And I know that there's probably a lot of individuals sitting here in the audience thinking about, okay, I get this, but what do I do when my two-year-old is on the floor, and this is a true story, sitting in the middle of a clinic, and she's rolling around yelling and screaming because her mom is back, you know, getting a, an immunization. She can't go there, and I'm sitting there in uniform, and everyone's looking at me like, why aren't you taking care and, and, and having your child behave correctly? And so I know that there's also some questions at that, that, that tactical level that I'm sure are um, individuals uh, that are listening would love to dig in on. So I hope that we'll be able to bring you back and, and kind of continue these conversations. And I really look forward to that. I also encourage our audience to take a look at the supplementary material that we're going to put online about how to start at the strategic level and create that mission statement, and as well as give us some feedback. Send us an email. Let us know what are some of those questions that you'd like us to address in future podcasts. And we look forward to talking more with you, Michelle. Thanks again. Us and You is sponsored by the USU Student Wellness Advisory Board. The SWAB is composed primarily of students from the USU School of Medicine, Graduate Education, and Graduate School of Nursing, with input from faculty advisors. The views expressed herein are of those of the presenters and do not represent the views of their employers, including the Uniformed Services University, Department of Defense, and the United States government. Interested in more topics? Contact the SWAB at student-wellness at usuhs.edu.